This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Facebook and Google pioneered lookalike audience marketing for B2C. Serial entrepreneur and engineer-turned-AI marketer Olin Hyde started LeadCrunch to do the same for B2B marketers, a group of buyers who behave in totally different patterns than consumers. Olin and Ledge discuss how engineers can learn about product market fit for their ideas and how SaaS subscription billing might not be the best fit for all businesses to unlock value-based billing. He makes a really convincing argument you won't want to miss. Olin, it's great to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Ledge. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm you know, honored and flattered that uh, you invited me. Thanks. Absolutely. So for those who are not familiar with you and your work, would you mind giving a, you know, just two or three minute introduction, where you came from, where you're going, and, and what you're up to these days? Sure. So I'm a serial entrepreneur. This is my eighth startup. Uh, LeadCrunch is a B2B lookalike marketing platform. And what we do is we enable marketers to find the right audience and engage that audience with the right content to start prospects on the buying journey. And you can think of LeadCrunch as doing for businesses that sell to businesses what Facebook and Google do for marketers that sell to consumers. And so we have, you know, a heavily technological audience. So connect the dots to that world um, in the technology seat and the engineering seat to your world and talking to marketing and sales folks. Sure. So I guess probably what would be interesting is that uh, the genesis of our technology is very oriented in in physics and uh, natural language processing and work that we originally did for the military. So my training and background is in uh, systems theory and artificial intelligence. And LeadCrunch originally started in a very different space. We wanted to find a way to accelerate medical research. And the insight that we had was is that you know, language has patterns, and those patterns are the way we derive uh, uh, meaning. And you know, why aren't we doing more intelligent pattern recognition among medical research to accelerate the way we find new drugs and so forth? And so uh, you know, we developed a very simple, what I think now is very simple, uh, language model, and we data mined about 20 million uh, open uh, source medical research papers. And we helped a friend of mine accelerate uh, the discovery of a possible link between type 1 diabetes and the herpes virus. And that research was published. It got $11 million of funding. And we thought, great, let's go use this technology to uh, cure cancer. Let's do something big. What we found was is that the medical research community is really more interested in uh, publishing papers and getting funding and that they don't have budget for our kind of technology. So the genesis of our technology was really that we had this what we thought was a great idea and we had some technical success, but we had complete and abject market failure because we really never identified a market that would be willing to pay for a natural language processing engine to go out and find uh, new research methods. Um, And so we pivoted and we were about to shut the company down. We're actually almost out of cash and we were fortunate to win a contract uh, with Lockheed Martin, a big defense contractor, where we, beat, where we beat IBM Watson and Palantir 
to win an R&D contract to develop target verification technologies for the Navy. And we did that for a while. It kept the lights on. But quite frankly, we were just not cut out to be military contractors. So we pivoted and we looked for ways that we could use targeting technology in a commercial setting. And about that time, you know, Facebook and Google were just crushing it with their lookalike platforms. Facebook lookalike audience, Google audience match. And we thought, wow, we really don't want to compete with Google or Facebook. Maybe we could do this for businesses that sell to businesses. And that became the genesis of where we started. And hopefully that wasn't too long of a story, but it kind of shows that, you know, the way that we developed was really through uh, irrational exuberance and enthusiasm to overcome failures. Yeah. And, you know, and I think we often get this idea, particularly on the engineering side or product side, like, like let's pivot the tech or, you know, maybe there's something wrong with the tech. But, you know, very often that product market fit thing is the real challenge is you have an often awesome solution you haven't found the problem for yet, you know, backwards. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, I, you know my background's engineering and I tend to get really enamored with uh, developing the hammer. And I run around looking for nails. And I think that, you know, what's really, you know, a business, a better business approach is oftentimes to start with a problem, start with a nail, and then you build the hammer specific to that nail. Um, I wish I was that smart. In the case of this company, we really much started with the hammer looking for, you know, where is this technology going to fit? What problems can it solve? And there's more wrong answers than right answers. And the proof of that is that, you know, we had about four major failures before we got to product market fit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, congrats on getting product market fit before you ran out of runway. I think that that is <laughs> that is the big, most important lean startup objective. Uh, <laughs> anybody that reads those books. So, um, yeah, let me ask you about, you know, audience matching for those who are not familiar. What is that? And then talk about that in the context of of B2B and how it's going to be different than maybe the consumer mapping that you might do or matching uh, with a Google or a Facebook? Yeah. So B2B marketing is dramatically different than B2C marketing. So in business to business marketing, you typically have five, six, seven, eight people involved in the purchase decision. So if Mary and Joe have very different ideas about what they're going to purchase, uh, that creates a lot of friction in the buying uh, process. If you compare that to the consumer decision, that's made by individuals. So the advantage uh, that Facebook and Google have are data advantages, where they know what websites you've been to, they know what you like, uh, they can create lots of data points to understand who you are as a person and who you're very similar to. And they have enough data on who you're similar to that they know that for instance, if Ledge and Olin are very similar people, Ledge likes purple sweaters, let's put an ad in front of Olin for a purple sweater and we'll see that he has a much higher conversion rate. And they do this through deep personalization. If we did that deep personalization in the business world, what happens is the two people making the decision, you know, Mary and Joe, they might, one might like red sweaters and the other might like purple sweaters and personalizing it actually amplifies their differences actually slows the process down, actually reduces conversion rate. So what we do is we find the similarities uh, between Mary and Joe so that we can build consensus. And the idea is not to personalize to seven or eight people in the company, 
but rather to create a coherent message that brings together consensus around our customer's brand. Right. Okay. So you're looking for the ways to, so having been in B2B sales a long time, I'm thinking, you know, uh, anybody who's not familiar with that, you kind of have this constellation decision-making, right? And you have people who are influencers and you have people who can say yes and people who can say no, um, people who just get in the way because that's what their job is and they're gatekeepers, um, people who can write a check, people who can make a decision. And so I'm hearing you say that what you try to do is take that crowd and find ways to, to grease the rails to get through kind of all those uh, buying or supporting personas. Right. So it's actually uh, you know a three-step process. First, you need to find the right accounts to go after. And that's fairly straightforward lookalike marketing. Uh, we take a list of 50 of your best customers or your account-based marketing list, whatever list you want to give us, we're going to find lookalikes to that list. And within that lookalike list of that audience that we build, there's going to be thousands and thousands of people that we organize into what we call buying centers. And buying centers is an old idea, and that's the gate, the different people that are involved in the decision makers. Uh, the decision maker, the gatekeeper, um, all the people that are influenced that decision. And in sales, they oftentimes will call this uh, account mapping, right? Like, so who's involved in the decision and how do we reach the right people? Well, our AI models about 180 million people in America, and we can predict who's likely to be involved in a purchase decision and what they're likely to be interested in about our customer's brand. So we can consult with our customer and say, look, we really think you need a white paper on this subject uh, or a piece of content that would help, say, a buyer's guide to move forward. And then then we syndicate that content into that buying group to build consensus. Oh, okay. So talk about that syndication process. What's, what's that look like? How do you get access to those folks? Email, display mm-hmm. ads, uh, telemarketing, you name it, we'll use it. Uh, what we've really found that's interesting lately is display ads. Because we can precisely target, we can suddenly change the use of display ads from awareness, where marketers typically use display ads to get brand awareness. We can now use it, those click-throughs to get engagement on a piece of content. So that's a relatively new thing that we're doing, and we're seeing some tremendous uh CTRs. Uh, in one of our cases, it was three times greater uh, than the uh, leading intent-based marketing solution. So we use a number of different methods to get engagement. Of course, we have what we call a response model for each one of these people. Everyone uh, in our database, we have a model of who's likely to respond in what uh, medium. Wow, that's fantastic. So you're talking to a lot of technology, product, CTO type folks. And I think you probably know that in the technology seat, sometimes marketing is this nebulous, weird group of people that, you know, tries to use technology that comes right. from 7,500 different vendors. The last time you check the the list of all the logos, uh, the purchasing decision alone for, for MarTech is complicated. The integration is complicated from a, a technology and data perspective. Can you just Talk about that. If you zoom out to the, the CTO seat, how how should they and, and will they experience, you know, MarTech and, and solutions like yours in general? Wow, that's that's a vast subject. Uh, there's about seven thousand MarTech platforms. Uh, we think there's so many 
that we don't need to have another login. You certainly don't need to go out and buy more technology. There's plenty of technology out there. Uh, there's an old joke in the AI community that when artificial intelligence works, we call it software. Uh, when it doesn't work, we talk a lot about AI. And in our case, we try to simplify the user experience to simply upload your best customers. Then we directly import engaged leads into the CRM. I think that from a CTO perspective, you know, marketing has been making their own technology decisions now for a while. And I think most people, including marketers, would agree that there's far too much technology for far too little return on investment. So I think that the way to look at us is more like a service. And uh, if the technology works, great. You don't even feel it. You don't even see it. All you get is better results. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that answer. And we are facing, uh, you may be familiar with, you know, sort of the, the DevOps world, and it's facing exactly the same thing now with the tooling and uh, pipelines and releases. And, you know, there's all that there's thousands of now tools trying to solve the operational challenges. And it reminds me a lot of that picture of the, the MarTech landscape, where the logos now outnumber the, the problems. And it's harder to shop for the solutions and find the right tool for the job than it ever has been how uh, look look from your seat as a as ceo and you're trying to integrate and build all kinds of things to pull your company together and make your teams across functions more successful so what's it look like from the top down when you see your leadership team and and scaling up a you know technology and and other organizations and making them work together how's that experience been it's you know I have a lot of trust and confidence in my leadership team. So, you know, they have a great deal of autonomy in what they select and how they go about uh, buying and building uh, technology. So there's always the buy, build, partner, license question. You usually have four different choices for uh, solving a given problem. And, you know, as a company, we really encourage people not to build. Let's focus our build on our own in, uh, our own solutions for customers and let's use as the right set of tools for everything else. Uh, what's interesting is you know, we have situations where we've outgrown technology and uh, we've had to, for instance, get locked into a subscription to something that we're not using. That's actually informed the way we do pricing for our product. So for LeadCrunch's customers, they don't buy a subscription to what we do. We charge by the unit of value that we deliver, and that's a cost per lead basis. And that's one of the reasons why we've grown so quickly. Uh, you know, we grew 20, our revenue 20% per month for 30 months in a row. Uh, and so we have, oh gosh, I think we grew uh, over 340% last year. From our view is that that unit-based pricing is a really smart way to look at technology. In fact, we're looking at an integration tool right now that's just going to pay us, uh, we're going to charge us by record. And I like that model a lot because that enables us to do attribution of value, allows us to look at the return on investment in technology. And I would, I would like to encourage the, uh, you know, the audience to really think through how they measure the ROI of something. Is that going to be similar to what would you think of as a utility-based model? You know, I, yeah. immediately everybody's head goes to like an Amazon, you know, and sort of use tiny portions of stuff and pay for it as you go. Do you envision that all SaaS kind of goes that direction? 
I think SaaS is a really old pricing model uh, that was originally developed to move things from capital expenditures to operating expenditures. And it had this side effect of predictable revenue, right? And why SaaS became popular with investors is the idea of sticky revenue and predictability and that your growth was uh, accretive, that you're only selling for new growth because you know if you're a subscription, then the subscriptions don't go away. I think that that model no longer works for many of the places where it's being applied. For plumbing type of applications like a CRM, SaaS works great. But you don't buy your gasoline on a subscription for very good reasons. The oil companies want to maximize their profit based on the spot value of crude oil and what does it cost to to refine that oil into gasoline. And similarly, most companies, for instance, ours, is more like a gasoline company in that we you can't run your business without leads, just like you can't run your car without gasoline. And our company is going to charge more for more valuable leads and less for less valuable leads. And you can't do that with a subscription. And even worse for the customer, the customer can't do attribution very easily on uh, a subscription for what is the return on investment. And so I think that uh, software as a service subscription model businesses uh, became wildly popular, largely driven by investor interest. Uh, But in the end of the day, I care a lot less about what investors think than I do what customers value. And we certainly drive our business based on customer value, not the proclivities of what uh, the venture capital community thinks, because they're, they've got bosses, too, called limited partners, and they're usually not customers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so you use the analogy of, uh, you know, spot crude, right, uh, which also adheres to commodity market behaviors with like so a global market that, you know, more supply drives down the price. So if everybody starts doing this, you know, across every utility, uh, do we start to run into a spot where it's difficult to, you know, uh, so you commoditize the utility of, of compute or lead value or whatever your, you know, sort of um, unit of measure is? Do you think about that at all? I do. And I think that commoditization and leads has happened for a long time. There's this prevailing wisdom that more is better, which is actually completely wrong. Uh, The quality of a lead is determined by its conversion rate. And it's one of the most powerful places to get value in, in uh, in a company is to have a top of a funnel with very high conversion rates. Everything's run smoother. You have incredible leverage down at the bottom of the funnel in terms of your return on investment. So I believe you're conflating two ideas. Quality is the differentiator, not the pricing model. The, the pricing model does not lead you immediately to commoditization. The pricing model really builds in the value of quality. Unless everything's the same quality, then of course it becomes a commodity. But you still have plenty of room for differentiation with an on-demand pricing model. Right, absolutely. And what would you say then, what are the qualities of a, a high conversion lead that that y'all might come up with that you could value it higher? What are the heuristics of that that you can know ahead of time? Because it's tempting for me to say, okay, cool. You know, so I get a lead, I might or might not convert it. 
um, but I would only know after the fact. So what's the predictive capacity and heuristics to know if something's more valuable on the front end? Well, leads are really people and people go through a journey to become a customer. And those journeys have steps along the way. How much do they engage with the content? How much do they engage with your sales team? You know, what is their fit to your ideal customer profile? So there's probably 20 or 30 different measures uh, that can be used by different companies. You know, different companies have different ways of measuring how well that funnel is working. But generally speaking, the higher level of engagement, the better it's going to convert. Hmm. Absolutely. Very interesting. Have you have you evolved from what would have been the traditional you're describing components of what I would have read about five years ago, maybe as, you know, inbound marketing, right? It was mm-hmm. the big revolution. Every blog post was about that. Do you think that it's, uh, it's evolved from there now, or is it, is this a smarter version of that original concept that we didn't have the ability to support before? It's an, and not an, or inbound is still incredibly valuable. And I would argue that inbound is always going to be your best quality of leads. The problem with inbound is you have no control over who's going to be the inbound. Uh, You can influence it. Uh, But recently, I got a letter from someone in prison that was very interested in my technology. So you can think of that as an inbound lead, but it's completely not qualified. He's serving a life sentence for murder. So how is that possibly a qualified lead? Whereas outbound, you have a much greater control over volume. You have a much greater control over audience selection. And the idea of our technology is the lookalike audience, the lookalike lead. That gives you a high degree of control and precision over who you're going after. So I think that, you know, we couldn't be where we are today without some of the great work that was done in inbound marketing. And I would call our technology a complement to inbound marketing. All right. So I always, uh, I finish up here with, uh, some lightning round questions. This is this is critically important <laughs> stuff. I'm gonna I'm okay. gonna sign the gonna get this open here. With my What's notes my favorite list. movie. <laughs> uh, we get we get we get very serious fast past that. Let's see. All right, here we go. All right, this is really critical stuff. You ready? Yeah. All right, Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, equal. I, if I have to gun to my head, Star Trek. <laughs> no pun intended gun.io no guns uh, yeah. let's see uh what are you reading right now the coddling of the american mind how bad ideas with good intentions are ruining a generation wow okay intense stuff i like that we're gonna have to link to that one what can you not live without my road bike Excellent. What is the last thing that you Googled for work? My goodness. Uh, I Google so much. I can't remember what the last one was about a customer. I was looking at uh, how much funding one of our customers received. I went to, didn't really Google. I went to Crunchbase. (laughs) Excellent. That's also how I use it a lot too, particularly about guests. My favorite answer to that question was when someone said they Googled me to, to learn about me before the interview. I, I personally thought that was awesome. So. Um, I don't know if you're a fan of The Office, right? But there's a there's a classic 
classic episode where Jim, the office protagonist, is messing with Dwight, the office heel. Right. And uh, he's sending him faxes from future Dwight. For example, the, you know, the coffee is poison today or, you know, what have you. And so I like to ask people, you know, if I, if I gave you a, like one piece of paper and one of those big, thick black Sharpies, and I said, you are, are now, you know, future Olin and you were faxing back to yourself some advice that you can put on that paper. What would you write on that? Don't sell the Apple stock. <laughs> well played well played awesome well Olin thank you for being a good sport we always appreciate that last round there uh, super interesting stuff thanks so much for the insights and it's great to have you on thank you so much really appreciate it thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io we're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers if you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us Head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.